Take your Bibles and turn to Romans. Romans this morning. If you come regularly, that should throw you off a bit. Uh, I'm asking you to turn to Romans this morning. I've decided to break up our series on 1 Corinthians and to cover a text in the book of Romans so that we might emphasize mission on this Mission Sunday. And this is the, the first time I'll ever have the privilege of actually preaching on this text of Scripture. So I, I really look forward to uh, doing so with you. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. If you're physically able to do so, would you stand with me as I read the scripture out of respect for the word of God? Romans chapter 15, verse 7. It's 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, O you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says... The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You may have a seat. The last several weeks I've been working through a dispute that was occurring between the Corinthian believers, believers in the house churches, the city of Corinth. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss a dispute that was occurring between some Roman believers. The dispute has some similarities, but there are some differences. I talked about this a few Sunday nights ago. Uh, But let me position us in Romans here for a bit. Their dispute was a bit different. First of all, they were having a dispute about meat But their meat was different. Look in your Bibles at Romans 14 and verse 2. It says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. In 1 Corinthians, the meat that was a matter of dispute was meat which had been formerly offered to idols. In Romans, the meat that is a cause of dispute is non-kosher Jewish meat. In order to really understand what's going on in the book of Romans, one of the things you need to know is uh, several years, about seven years before Paul writes the book of Romans, there was an edict from a Roman ruler by the name of Claudius that required all Jews to leave Rome. You can actually read about that in your Bible sometime. You could go to Acts chapter 18 and you can see that Aquila and Priscilla were, were Jewish believers who were forced out of Rome And they landed in Corinth for a time. And so this Roman ruler by the name of Claudius uh, demands that all Jews would be removed from Rome in 49 AD. That edict is removed in about 55 AD. And in about 55 AD, many Jews came flooding back into the city of Rome. And that dramatically impacted the churches of Rome 
because the churches of Rome were made up of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And so just one year before Paul writes Romans, these Jewish believers came back to the churches of Rome and they found that things had greatly changed. Come back to the church picnic. Remember this thought? Or they come back to the church picnic and they, they observe the sight of Gentile believers eating ham sandwiches and hot dogs. Well, maybe not hot dogs. I don't know when those things were created. But they're eating non-kosher foods. And so the Jewish believers would, of course, be offended at the fact that Gentile believers felt the freedom to eat pork. You can imagine the Gentile believers responding, what were we supposed to do? All of the Jewish slaughterhouses were shut down for six years. Were we just supposed to eat vegetables? There's a dispute, and the meat is different. There's, there's an argument about it. There'd be arguments about whether or not they should keep the law as well and honor things like the Sabbath. Imagine a Jewish believer coming back to the churches of Rome Showing up for church on Saturday, the Sabbath, only to find their Gentile believers mowing their grass or doing something else. And when they, when they question them or ask them, how in the world could you have the freedom to do this? Shouldn't you be at least worshiping on the Sabbath? The Gentile believers would say, well, now we worship on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a dispute about meat. The other difference I see between this text and the text we've been working through for the last several weeks is the weaker brother is different. In 1 Corinthians, the weaker brother was morally weak because of some baggage that he had with idolatry before his conversion. Whereas in Romans, the weaker brother, in my opinion, is a Jewish believer who believes that uh, followers of Christ still need to obey the law of Moses. So, uh, in Romans 14 and 15, when you read about a weaker and a stronger believer, I think that it almost, uh, across the board, speaks of uh, the differences between Jewish and Gentile believers in the city of Rome. In other words, the weaker brothers, they were Jewish believers. The stronger brothers in Rome were primarily Gentile believers. That is why Paul takes, can take two twin paragraphs to close out this section and make an exchange. Uh, in verses 2 through 6 of Romans chapter 15, Paul gives a concluding paragraph to the whole dispute between Jewish and Gentile believers, and he implores the weak and the strong. He's got two categories there. But then in verses 7 through 13 that I just read, he's got two categories of people there as well. The two categories are Jews and Gentiles. And instead of those being like two different groups of people or two different discussions, I think Paul's giving us two different ways of looking at the same issue or problem in Corinth. There are many similarities in these two paragraphs. And just for a moment, I'd like for you to see some of them. Uh, in Romans 15, verses 2 through 6, and then in verses 7 through 13, these similar passages are arranged, they're arranged in the exact same way. Both of them start with an initial command. Look in your Bible at verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. 
might not be obvious or easy to see in our English Bibles, but that is a command from the Apostle Paul. We are to be pleasing our neighbors for their good. He follows that same pattern in verse 7 when he gives them an opening command in the paragraph that we're going to be looking at when he says, therefore welcome one another. That's a command or an imperative. He follows the commands by giving the example of Christ or uh, grounding these commands in the example of Christ. So look in your Bible, look down in your Bible at verse 3, and the first words of verse 3 are, for Christ. So Paul's basically saying you need to please your neighbor for his good, and let me give you the reason why, because Jesus did this too. But then you look a little bit later in your Bible in verse 8, and notice how it's exactly, it's, it's parallel. Look at the first word of verse 8, for I tell you that Christ, So the reason you should be welcoming one another is Christ was welcoming of other believers and other types of people in the assembly. He follows both of the examples of Christ by by giving scriptural warrant for what he believes. So look look in your Bible at verse 3, right in the middle of verse 3. He says, But as it is written, you see that there? But as it is written, and then he quotes the Old Testament scripture. Quotes from the book of Psalms. But then notice as well in verse 9, in the middle of that verse, it says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. And here he's going to ground what he has to say in four different texts from the Old Testament scriptures. He follows the same exact pattern. You see that as well in the prayer wish at the end of both sections. Isn't the Bible amazing? Look in verse 5. Look in verse 5 and how Paul closes that first section. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. And then he makes a request for the Roman believers, but then look down in your Bible at verse 13. May the God of hope. See the parallels. What I would like to do this morning is to draw our our attention a little bit more closely to verses 7 through 13, where Paul calls this church to unity and talks about the ramifications of that unity upon the nations. The title of the sermon this morning is united for the nations. United for the nations. Today I want to talk about verses 7 through 13 at a high level with you. Organize it around what I feel are the three predominant points and then emphasize mission to our church. The end, if you pay close attention, you follow along, we're going to make some very pointed applications for our own assembly as we think of mission in this world. And so, uh, first of all, I would like to look with you at verse 7, where Paul gives us what he wants from us. Verse 7 is the command, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul starts out this section by telling us exactly what he wants from us or the Roman believers. This opening command is welcome one another. In verse 7, Paul stresses the need for us to welcome each other by repeating that verb twice. Welcome one another as Christ welcomed. This word for welcome is used to the sense uh, to receive or welcome another warmly. 
Uh, this particular verb is not used very often in the New Testament in this way. When I came across it uh, in, in being used this way, though, it, it helped me understand a little bit more what Paul means when he, when he addresses the weaker and the stronger believers in Rome, and he says, you need to receive each other warmly. You can write down the parallel passage, Acts chapter 28 and verse 2, where this verb is used as well. In Acts 28 and verse 2, the, uh, the inhabitants or the citizens of the, the native people of Malta showed unusual kindness to Paul and some other people who were with him who were shipwrecked in that they made a fire for them, they invited them into their place, and they kept them warm. In that passage, Luke uses the same exact verb that's used of this passage, the unusual kindness of those people to take people in, to receive them warmly, is the, is the command that Paul gives to the Roman believers. You should re- receive each other graciously. Then, in the next part of verse 7, Paul gives us the specific manner in which we are to do this. Receive one another as Jesus received them for the glory of God. So we are to receive our brothers and sisters in this assembly in the same way that Jesus might receive them or has received them. We need to remember that Christ was accused of eating with tax collectors and sinners. Unfortunately, Christ's actions sometimes are not quite real to to us. His actions, the way he functioned and behaved, even at corporate meals, uh, are not vivid to us. They're just words on a page. They're not things that control the way we deal with people that we disagree with. So the the final point I want to make in verse 7 is that when Jesus receives someone, we need to welcome them too. We need to do so in the same way that he did. So this is what Paul wants from us. You got that? Let's move to verses 8 through 12. Next, Paul gives the reasons why he expects the Roman believers to receive each other. And his reasons are twofold. In verses 8 and 9, he he says that we should receive each other because Christ did. Christ received our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Look at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us a very good reason why we should accept people within the assembly that we disagree with in matters of Christian liberty. And the reason is something he had already hinted at in verse 7, but he makes it explicit here. We should receive them, and in this original setting, Gentile believers should receive Jewish believers, and Jewish believers should receive Gentile believers because Christ had international goals with his life and death. In other words, Christ became a servant to minister to both Jew and Gentile. Although Jesus was born in, in, uh, and lived in the little regions of Jerusalem and Galilee, and he functioned there for his whole life, his mission was for the world 
And now Jesus gladly receives anyone who has faith in him alone. So as we're working down through the text, you can see the twin or parallel purposes of Christ's ministry in the middle of verse 8 with the phrase, in order that, and then the beginning of verse 9 with him repeating that phrase, in order that. So look with me at verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, and here's his purpose, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. The Jewish fathers, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus came and he ministered to the Jewish people. He became a servant to confirm the promises God made to the Jewish people. It's part of his purpose. Then you see in the very next phrase, and second purpose, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So to a church that was having having a hard time of receiving or accepting each other along ethnic lines, ethnic diversity, Paul says you must receive them because Jesus came and he functioned and lived to confirm promises to Jewish patriarchs and so that Gentile people might be able to stand with Jews and glorify God for his mercy. So men and women, we must never discriminate in whom we offer the gospel to. We're not specifically targeting any financial class of people at Colonial Baptist Church. We are not only seeking anyone, we're not seeking any one ethnicity of people either. In other words, when you see a lost person, a lost soul, do not stop to consider their social strata or their ethnic makeup. Instead, reach out to them for the gospel. Don't discriminate in your neighborhood. It may be that you live in a place in Chesapeake or Virginia Beach or Norfolk that is greatly diverse. My answer to that is great. Reach out. Give all of your neighbors the gospel of Jesus Christ. All people need the gospel of grace. And all categories of people can now be saved because of the work of Jesus Christ. Christ came not only to save Jewish people, he had international goals in his earthly ministry. And we should welcome all other believers in this assembly because Christ provided a way for them to be saved. So we should receive each other because Christ did. And then secondly, we should receive each other because the scriptures describe it. So Paul's answering the question, why should you welcome each other along ethnic lines in the church? And uh, what he then goes about doing from verses 9 through 12, and we'll just look at this at a high level, is he goes about quoting four different passages that are from the Old Testament, that are to demonstrate that within the eternal purposes of God, God has a desire for Gentile people to be converted as well. My opinion, this text is primarily directed at Jewish believers who are having a hard time accepting Gentile believers as full standing members of the church of God. And so what Paul does here is he says, let me just remind you of a few texts of scripture. 
And I just want to draw a few observations from these. Again, we can't look at every one in detail. But let me just make a few of these observations about the four quotes that occur from verses 9 through 12. First of all, each one of these four citations contains Gentiles praising the Lord. Do you notice that? Each one of them. Where Gentiles is mentioned five times in verses 9 through 12. In the quotations. Five times. So each one of these quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, Paul brings to light because it has the Gentiles praising the Lord. Another observation about the four quotes that is just amazing to me is that within the four quotes, Paul calls from testimony from every section of the the Jewish scriptures, of the scriptures. And so he has quotations that come from the law and the prophets and the writings of the Jewish Old Testament. I think Paul learned this as a Jewish rabbi. This is a rabbinic practice. Rabbis would often do this if they're trying to prove their point. They want to prove that no one could disagree with their theology or their views on a subject, so they would quote from the law, the prophets, and the writings to offer this this full, conclusive evidence to their, their point. And so, as a formally trained rabbi, Paul proves his point indisputably by arguing from every place in the scriptures. It's like he says this, you need to welcome your Gentile believers and scriptures on my side. Every part of it. The law, the prophets, and the writings God wove into all of those writings that God was always concerned for Gentile people. It's one other observation I would have you see in these four quotations, and you could study them. You could go back into the Old Testament and look at each one of them in their original context. But Paul here, I I want you to notice as well that in those four quotations, the first and the last ones give declarations or simple statements regarding Gentiles praising the Lord. The first and the last. And the second and the third involve imperatives or commands where Gentiles are commanded to join along the Jews and worship God. Okay, and in my, in my opinion, I think that the emphasis or the stress in this text is placed upon those simple statements, the first and the last, where Paul is appealing or explaining to Jews, again, maybe reminding them again, that the Gentiles praising God was predicted in the Old Testament times. The Gentiles would be empowered to worship God. I think for Paul, his views of Jesus Christ as a son of God, that time is now. Gentiles are full-fledged worshipers of God. And the Jewish believers must see this. Jesus has provided a way for everyone to be included. And so this is why we must be united. Jesus welcomed Gentile believers into God's family. And the Old Testament spoke of a time when it would happen. So, in other words, we need to make sure. We need to make sure that we're unified as well as a church. And and there's no reason, there's no good reason for us to be divided up along this sort of ethnic barrier. But there's one other thing I want to show you in the text, and that's verse 13. This is really the primary reason I chose this text to speak from. Third, I want you to see for what purposes Paul demands that Roman believers welcome or receive each other. 
I think we can begin to see this in his prayer wish in verse 13. Look in your Bible at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. My opinion, Paul wants this church to be uh, united so that they might abound in hope. More specifically, in verse 13, he says that uh, he wants the God of hope to fill them with all joy and peace in believing so that through the Holy Spirit they would abound in hope. As you look at Paul's prayer wish here, it's, it's pretty exorbitant. He wants them to be a joyous assembly. He wants them not only to be filled with joy, he wants them to be filled with peace or to be a peace-filled assembly, no, no disharmony or tension in the assembly. And he prays for the Holy Spirit to make them abound in hope. That is, he wants their corporate hope to be overflowing. But in my opinion, when he says, I want you to be abounding in hope, he does not see that as an end in itself. He's not just closing out this section with this really nice prayer about hope. But there's a reason why Paul really wants this church to be the sort of church that's filled with joy, that's overflowing with hope, that's filled with peace. And that, I think we can see in the rest, in the rest of the chapter. It's very interesting to me in the very next part of chapter 15, after he closes this chapter out, in verses 14 through verses 21, Paul mentions the Gentiles three more times. Look with me in your Bible. I'm just going to read it without saying much about it, but verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with, with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. We'll stop there for sake of time. What I want you to see, though, is that Paul's not done talking about the Gentiles. If you actually do a word study of the word for Gentiles, you'll see that it starts in chapter 5, and he just keeps saying it over and over and over again. And so one of the reasons that Paul wants them to be the sort of church that's harmonious, abounding in hope together corporately, is so that God might also use them to reach other Gentiles for the glory of God course, Paul is a minister of the gospel to the Gentiles, but where he's going in the very next paragraph is to explain to them that God has placed a new group of people, a new group of Gentiles on his heart. And it is his desire that the Roman believers would be of a help or an encouragement to him as he goes there. So if you look at verses 22 through 29 in your Bible, you see that Paul targets a specific type of Gentile people. Look in verse 22. This is a reason then why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to come in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. 
once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Uh, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in your spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness and blessing of the blessing of Christ. Here we learn that Paul not only wants to reach Spain, he desires for the unified Roman believers to help him through their prayer and their support. And this is, I believe, one of the main reasons why Paul wrote Romans. Some some commentators actually believe that this is the main reason that Paul wrote Romans because he wanted to generate support from the Roman believers for this new mission that he had to evangelize and reach Spain. I think it's necessarily the primary point, but regardless, Paul desires here... I believe, to follow a pattern that he's used in his apostolic ministry in his previous missionary journeys. Remember the previous missionary journeys of the, of, of the Apostle Paul that are unfolded for us in the book of Acts. Paul normally starts at the church at Antioch. You remember the three missionary journeys of Paul? You remember the map in your Bible? If you look at the map in your Bible and you see the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, you see that each one of those missionary journeys started from the church in Antioch, and from there Paul went west in a circle. When Paul is writing to the Roman believers, I think that uh, he is uh, primarily asking them to become the new Antioch for the west. As he thinks of Spain to the far west, I think it's Paul's desire that the Roman believers would help him on his way. To minister the gospel, minister to the, the gospel to the people of Spain. Okay. As we look at this text, I, I want to suggest that Romans 15, 7 through 13, the passage we went quick, quickly through this morning, is not only Paul's way to close out a debate about certain foods and Jewish laws, it's also a way for him to pave the way forward for the mission and the desire that he has to reach the Spanish people. This church must be unified. They must be filled with peace. They must be abounding in joy. It must be a joyous church. They must have corporate hope in Christ so that they can be used by God to help him reach Spain. So Roman believers must be united for the good of the nations. Having worked through this passage, I want to make a few final applications to us as a church, and I have three points of application. They won't take as long as the three points in the sermon. First, I want to, in, in pointed application to our church, I want to remind you that there are great numbers of lost people around our church building. We are surrounded by approximately 250,000 people within a five-mile radius of this building. And our population density is, uh, as far as I can, I did a little bit of math, it's, it's four or five times more dense than it was for ancient Rome or Corinth. 
In other words, what I'm suggesting to you is we have an even greater opportunity for the gospel of Jesus Christ than Paul or the ancients did. We're surrounded by many lost souls, a quarter of a million people. It's in a five-mile radius from where you're sitting right now. Not only are there great numbers of lost people around us, I also would suggest that the nations are here. The nations are here. Our cities boast of great ethnic diversity. The nations are here. Our location is highly transient. By that I mean that uh, people come from all over the world to the Hampton Roads area, and they're here for just a short time, some of them, for a few months or a few years. Then they're spread out all over the world again. The opportunity to reach our region is an opportunity to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You add to that as well the huge percentage uh, of people in our, wor- in our area that are military. There are currently 83,000 active military personnel in the Hampton Roads area. And these people are living in our neighborhoods. These people are people that we can evangelize. They're people who will then be deployed and sent out all over the world. We must be united for the nations as well. We can't be bickering, arguing over different areas of Christian liberty whenever we have such a great opportunity to be united, to take the gospel to the people around us. And so, the three applications are this. There's a great number of lost people around us. The nations are here. But then my third application is, we are here as well. We are here. This is where God has placed us. You look at this map, This map represents what God has blessed our church with. In our church, we have 381 family units in our location. And we're sprinkled out all over the map. All over the map. Each pin on this map represents one of the families of our church. I want to especially thank John Perry who helped me get this map this week. He can do amazing things. Our church database actually makes it so that we can put all of our members on the map. I look at this area, I think of hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. I think of 381 homes where people know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We have an opportunity to reach this region for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must not only reach the nations, we must reach our neighborhoods. This past week, I was praying about the sermon, my family, and how we might reach our neighborhood. Our neighborhood is in Greenbrier. It's about two miles from here. The housing development is called Huntington Woods. I zoomed in and looked at the map, and as I was considering the small circle there, that's the Belford Estates (laughs) in Huntington Woods. I was looking, I noticed, you know what, there there are three or four other believers in our assembly who live in or just beside Huntington Woods. 
And the thought hit me, perhaps instead of trying to do this all on our own, maybe as a church with these believers, I could be united for the sake of the gospel, to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to Huntington Woods. Many people there who do not know Jesus Christ. And I, I had fun with this a bit. And Warrington Hall, just down the road from us, you could see what five families who could join together for the sake of the gospel and reach unbelievers in Warrington Hall. Or you could look at different places in Great Bridge. You see, I think this is near Mount Pleasant Road. Different families here, seven families in Great Bridge that God has blessed our church with. We could covenant together. We could work together. Overlooking minor differences for the needs of the world. We could look, even, even people near Mount Trashmore Park. Mount Trashmore Park, four, four families in a greater distance of Mount Trashmore Park. Men and women, God has given us much. And we are responsible to tell others of Christ. May this new year, may, may this fall and winter, be a time where God gives us many new converts for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want the church to grow by inheriting other believers. But may God so burden our heart that we would actually get together with some other believers in this assembly, other members, and strive through prayer and through energy and zeal to reach our neighborhoods for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God put us on this map, and he has done so for a reason. I pray that we will be like uh, the church that Pastor James read about this morning, the church of Thessalonica, who trumpeted out, sounded forth the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this text I thank you, Lord, for how you have placed this passage in Romans to help believers see through their differences. See that Jesus' purposes included the patriarchs, the Jewish patriarchs, and the Gentiles. Lord, I thank you for the masterful way that you led the Apostle Paul through the inspiration of the Spirit to place his text in a passage that points forward to Paul's vision and hope for Spain. Lord, may you give us a vision for our own neighborhood, for the gospel of God. May we not just be a church that, that only puts money in the plates to support missions but a church that puts our lives at your disposal to make a difference in the Hampton Roads area. God, we want to thank you for the place that you've put us in, this geographical location. And may we sense this morning the great responsibility that we, 381 family units in the Hampton Roads area, have to take the gospel to our neighbors. Lord, perhaps we've been limited in our views of what you could do through our church. But may this push us forward. May your word push us forward so that we might look for ways to tell our neighbors of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this, Lord, and pray that you would do this for your own honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.